Jibber Lewis's grandmother perfected a pastry on the island of Anguilla some decades ago. That pastry is known as a cheese patty by legions of local fans. Jibri's dad took the cheese patty to new levels and has turned it into one of the most popular on-the-go meals on the island. Jibri cannot make the cheese patty as well as his dad can, though his culinary skills have much to be desired as far as the cheese patty is concerned. He makes up for it with his sheer scientific genius. Jibri is very modest and quite simply one of the nicest people you will ever meet. Therefore, he will disapprove of my next statement. Jibri is brilliant. Few people can testify that their entry into a high school science fair was the base for a mechanism that has the potential to change the way the world produces electricity. A science fair that he did not win, by the way. Jibri's proposal to improve an already existing wave turbine was eventually examined by professors at MIT. MIT was hungry to learn more about Jibri's research and about Jibri himself. After some negotiation, Jibri traded his research with MIT for the opportunity to attend and earn both his bachelor's and master's degrees free of cost. In addition, the consummate island boy was not fond of Boston's brutal winters. He further persuaded the institution to allow him to take classes from Anguilla and fly to Boston every few months for examinations. Jibri was attending university from his living room, long before COVID-19 ever thought of it. Today, additions have been made to Jibri's research, and new wave turbines that house the essence of Jibri's initial brilliant idea are being tested in several countries, including Australia and Puerto Rico. An idea sparked by a science fair led Jibri to become one of the world's most celebrated young physicists. But there's so much more to tell. This is the story, thus far, of Jibri Lewis. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Physicist, inventor, and all-around tech enthusiast, Jibber Lewis, welcome to Planet 30. Welcome, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm excited to be here amidst these interesting times. Ah, boy. Interesting indeed. Now, Jibber, you grew up in Anguilla. Uh, in the, I'd say in the 2000s. Very interesting yes. time for the island. Uh, most of the guests I've had on here are a bit older, even if they were from Anguilla. So when they speak of Anguilla, it's a in 80s, 90s, sometimes 70s Anguilla. But you grew up in the 2000s. What was that like? Bye. I absolutely loved it. I remember getting started from the dial-up internet, getting the, the first little uh, broadband, uh, fast internet uh, modems inside the house. I remember the, the influx of computers and I was sudden getting taught IT inside of high school and primary school. Uh, I remember marbles and, and cars and dominoes and Yu-Gi-Oh cars and all those great things. I, I think I grew up in just like the best era you could possibly grow up in. Literally the best era you probably. Like, this era, 
feel as though has been caught caught with already having the super advanced smartphones and computers and this and that and the other. I was still when that when that stuff when that shit was like not good. Like when your computer used to break every five minutes, and if you wanted to have nice stuff, you can add a lot to fix it, and there was no three, four day mail and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that was a generation. <laughs> now, what were your dreams coming up as a kid? By when I was younger, to West, which of course you know uh, very well, he used to live literally right next to us. Mm-hmm. And Joash was big into archaeology. This is your cousin. And he, yeah, Joash is my uncle. Okay, your uncle. And he got me hooked into archaeology, and I was obsessed with it for a couple of months. And I had it set all the way until maybe like fourth or fifth form in high school that I was going to be an archaeologist. I was going to uh, go all over the world and document. Uh, interesting things and and, and, and categorize them and study archaeology and all that great stuff and you know life is a complicated endeavor in some way or another I ended up becoming a physicist instead but when I was growing up my dream was archaeology I still love it but I do it more of a hobby now than than, than. Mm. you have a deep deep love for Anguilla where does this love come from? by I lived in some amazing places, uh, you know, in my very short life still, but I lived in places like Boston, which I very much regard to be a utopia or a perfect city. It was, coming from Anguilla to uh, Boston, it was just like one of the biggest shell shocks you could imagine. Coming from Anguilla, we, you know, where we kind of have roads and, uh, you know, stop signs and all these great things. But going to Boston, where there was a subway system that worked so well, there was intricate uh, interstates and, and 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 technology and people moving effortlessly throughout it. I was I was always blown away. That being said, there is nothing like being able to walk down the street and know just about ninety percent, if not every person you meet. There's something about not being able to stand up on the side of the road for more than five minutes without catching a lift that, you know, you're just never gonna, you're never gonna find anywhere else. I was born and raised in Anguilla with the people of Anguilla and, you know, that's a part that could never go away. I love Boston, but Boston could never be home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, your dad is Anguillian and your mom is from the Netherlands. What are some of the Dutch traditions that you learned coming up from your mom? See, surprisingly enough, we didn't do too much of the Dutch traditions, and she was like obsessed with me not learning wrong Dutch because I guess the Martin next door to us, Anguilla, uh, which is a uh, uh, Dutch overseas territory, or whatever, and they speak, you know, kind of Dutch, and they have kind of Dutch traditions, and she desperately didn't want me to go to the Martin and learn that kind of Dutch also, so she would. Every now and then, we would have like a Dutch night where we eat uh, special sausage and mashed potatoes with spinach and all that kind of stuff. But really, truly, I need to fix this, but I'm very disconnected with my Dutch heritage. Mm. I blame my mother for it. But you do speak Dutch. I can speak enough Dutch to get around. Like if I'm in, if you're dropping a Holland, I can get to like the train station, but I ain't having no conversations with people, you know? 
<laughs> now, your mom is a painter. Your dad yes. is in the culinary arts. How do yes. you go from two artists to a scientist? See, it's a mystery that my parents have always tried to figure it out. Because my brother, who's a couple years younger than me, he's big into business, which is more what my dad was. And and my mom is as far from a scientist as you possibly can be. You know, she's an artist. Uh, and But that being said, everybody else in my family were heavy scientists especially on my mom's side. Like, both of my uncles were engineers. A lot of um, my other family members were, like, lawyers, which is, you know, a much more, like, disciplined subject, which, you know, has a lot more to do with the sciences. Uh, it also, you know, was just something that I was good at. I have a philosophy in life, and one of my biggest philosophies of life is the path of least resistance. I love art, but I'm just not good at art. The one thing that uh, I have a knack or makes me a little bit special is I have a pretty good mind for science. And that mind for science makes you know it easier to progress in the world of science. And because of that, I just became a scientist. But I don't love science too much. I do, I do lean more towards the arts. And I try to incorporate the arts into science as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Which is where the inventing comes into play. Exactly. Okay. So here's a question for you. Coming up through high school, obviously on Anguilla, you went through the CXC and A-level programs. In your opinion, does the Caribbean curriculum, particularly in high school, when it comes to STEM, uh, does the school system and the curriculum, etc., equip students to compete with the rest of the world at large? I don't. I can't speak too much about the rest of the Caribbean because I don't know how closely they follow towards Anguilla. But in terms of Anguilla, I have to say heavily no. It's one of my biggest gripes about the education system in Anguilla. My mom is also a teacher, so you know I talk a lot about education with her and the education system and so on. But I always firmly believe uh, our school heavily incentivizes uh, construction and. Uh, uh, hospitality traits, not so much on the sciences, not so much on you know IT and computer science and all these kind of great things, which I feel as though would give them more uh, legway in the global world. But uh, you know, Anguilla being a, a a country with you know big two primary industries being construction and hospitality, the school I feel is a little bit more centered towards, you know, pushing out more construction workers and engineers and architects and more uh, mixologists and hotel managers and destination specialists and things of that nature. That's, very, that's really my biggest gripe. It's very interesting. I think that's a, a total uh, 180 from when we were there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember the days they just kind of completely slept. Like, Colleen, like, our, our, our class for our class for uh, Gmail was sub uh, significantly more like engaged and had a lot more resources thrown at it uh, than, for example, our IT class. Our IT class, we were learning Pascal, which is a language that's one very inintuitive and because it's going to uh, offer you very little in terms of you know uh, options uh, career-wise or moving forward-wise. The IT uh, department always, to me, seemed a lot 
uh, underfunded and people didn't have as much enthusiasm for uh, IT as any of the other subjects. And it, I think it comes down to a, like a, a, a larger problem. I don't know if I want to go into that, but it's a larger problem within Anguilla itself. Uh, the shot of it being, I also wanted to be like a architect. I was in the GMAT class, and I think the reason I was a scientist is because of uh, that whole system as well. But you want to be who you who you can see. Everyone wants to have, you know, the nice car and the big house and, you know, do well in life and all that kind of stuff. You don't really think about what's going to make you happy when you're in high school. You think about, hey, who do I know doing great stuff? Who do I know has a nice house and the, the big car? It was my uncle who's an architect or your father who's an engineer or your aunt who is the head of HR for Chris and Art. And, you know, those are the things that you aspire to be like and those, those are the professions and industries that you uh, strive to, 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 to engage in. Uh, there's no real big person, you know, that were very public in the world of IT. There were no big persons who made it as maybe like authors or artists or things of that nature in Angola and, you know, leaves you lacking for, uh, for role models. Yeah, I think that's a big, a big problem to why, a big uh, reason as to why our education system is kind of the way it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, even though there were some hurdles, you somehow still managed to be accepted to one of the world's most prestigious uh, schools, MIT. Yes, MIT. Uh, Massachusetts. And graduate. I, I know that, I know that. Now, was MIT always the dream, or, or did you kind of just happen upon MIT? 100% happen upon... Uh, uh, like, MIT, for me, has always been, like, a school. It's a good school, don't get me wrong, but it's always just been a school that had a really good marketing team. Uh, in terms of like amongst your peers and like and fellow engineers, the school that you strive for, the real you know amazing school, would be something more along the lines of Caltech. Uh, so like it it it's it's good to have that name on the paper, and it's good to have the degree on the wall with the MIT name because you know again the marketing side. But in terms of the prestige amongst your fellow peers, something more like Caltech is what I was aiming for. Uh, that being said, I had such great experience at MIT, uh, the faculty and staff there, you know, did so much to get me where I needed to be and really uh, made it be a mission to make sure that uh, the project I was working on and uh, myself, you know, really came fully into its, 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 its vision. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> while you were at MIT, I remember going down to a local pub slash night spot called the Pump House. It no longer exists, unfortunately. And I met you there. And it was, I think, October. And I was very puzzled. How, how am I meeting you here in the middle of the semester? And you explained to me that you were able to take classes at home and then go back to Boston for exams. Now, I had never heard of this deal. Ever. Because I would have taken something like that had I known I could negotiate that with my school. How did that happen? So, MIT is a technical school. Uh, and my course itself, which was a very technical course, uh, basically uh, revolved around your thesis. 
to the first two years of your academic study. It's, you know, basically uh, study, test, study, test. I had gotten through that. I spent two years in Boston, uh, did my two years of, you know, study class, test, and all that stuff. Then the last three years are where you actually work on your thesis. Now, depending on what your thesis is, uh, you can get permission to work on site. Uh, my thesis was centered about wave around wave energy, specifically around a farmer that was developing to uh, calculate the use of wave energy. Uh, and that device that I was using to calculate the use of wave energy that, that I had developed myself was based here in Anguilla. And thus, they said, hey, you know, to work in your thesis and your, your, your device, it's best for you to stay in Anguilla. I was able to make the argument, and they agreed. So I would travel up every now and then for like performance reviews and so on. But other than that, I get to see Lucky you, lucky you. Now, you you mentioned that you worked on a device having to do with wave energy. Yeah, mm-hmm. how did you arrive at the decision to create that device? So, this is one of the things that is one of the biggest misconceptions about uh, what I did. Uh, is actually, I did not create a device that did wave energy. I created a special turbine. Ah. Now, this turbine just happened to be the missing key piece that made a lot of other inventions feasible. A lot of other inventions specifically geared towards wave energy. So my device then allowed person other wave technologies like the rolling tumbler wave technology or the deep sea probe wave technology to uh, to to be reach a point where it was you know uh, efficient enough to compete with things like solar or wind. And then because of that, you know, I played a lot of part in you know helping working with those wave energy people in order to you know make it more efficient and more efficient to the point where. It is today where it's uh, deemed to be one of the most up-and-coming forms of renewable energy. Mm-hmm. After you invented the turbine, you got an offer from, is it one government or more than one government? Oh, I mean, I can quickly go through the whole thing. Please do. From the start. Okay. So, back in high school here in Anquilo, when I was in about fifth form, I believe, fifth form or fourth form, uh, we had just a regional science fair, which we have every year. It's usually great fun. Uh, and my science fair, uh, going along with the theme of, that was being done for the, the whole uh, fair was renewable energy. I wanted to do something along with renewable energy. Now, solar and wind were something things that were very, very popular. And I wanted you know see if I can differentiate myself from the crowd as much as possible. So I decided I'm going to see what I can do with, you know, hydroelectricity in some way or another. Of course, the most common things for hydroelectricity is, you know, dams and rivers and things mm-hmm. of such, of which in Anguilla there are none. So I started to investigate wave energy and I investigated and investigated and investigated and tried to learn as much as I possibly could about uh, that field. In my discoveries, uh, one, there's not much things about wave energy uh of places close to the equator. When you're close to the equator, you get a, a completely different type of wave than you do, uh, you know, further up north or south. Uh, the main difference being further up north or south, 
you will find larger waves, but then in a less, 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 less sporadic. Uh, so better, much more predictable, much more sequenced and easier to walk with. Closer to the equator, you get smaller waves in total, but a much higher period. So you can end on much higher frequency as well. Uh, so there had not been much work done uh, in that field. So I decided I was going to build myself a uh, turbine based on uh, some turbines that had been previously developed uh, for that other form of wave energy, the, the, the lower period wave energy. And I was going to, you know, modify it as much as I can to make it effect- effective for downhill. Uh, so I did that and it worked. It hardly worked. It, would, it was terrible. <laughs> and I didn't understand why it didn't work. Uh, so I went last night for a loss, last night for horribly. And I decided, but I did just good enough and it was interesting enough that they said, hey, you should go into regional science. The regional science here was all the other Caribbean islands, so Trinidad and Puerto Rico and, you know, a lot of the, the other islands within the region, uh, participating in regional science field. And this one I got access to, like, a tutor. Uh, so, like, they assigned you someone based on your project that you had submitted and then they would help you and my the person who I got assigned, which was a physicist, I explained him what I want to do, and he was like, "And eh, this ain't really my field. I can't really help you too much, but I can put you on to someone who can help you." He put me on to somebody. Didn't work out. That person also, you know, didn't really understand what I was doing, but uh, thought I was interested and sent me on to another person. That other person was a professor from MIT. Ah, okay. So this professor from MIT helped me develop my new turbine specifically set up to meet the means of our you know specific profile of wave energy so i did that it worked significantly better i was able to um, you know charge a computer and power a light after the wave energy here at Winner point it did good did it in the science fair one i think was second or third place in that science field so all great happy i wrote a little paper which he helped me with and I published the paper. Uh, the paper did pretty well, got a lot of traction. I think I got what, I think a fourteen point T scale on top of the, the paper. Uh, so it was published in which in which journal? That it was some. I can't remember the exact journal. It was National Inquisitor was my my most recent paper, but the first one was. Yeah, this is when Boston Dynamics had their their journal. And this is and you're in high school at this time. Yeah, I mean, I'm like in six farms, so like you got published. Just high school. Let me get this straight. So I got published. Yes, yeah, correct, correct. So I got published. You got published in high school. Yeah. There are people. Yeah, you didn't that, get much. Yeah. There are people Sorry, that, that are have, that have master's degrees that are clamoring to get published. Yeah. Yeah. So I got published, great, made a little bit of money, and I also got funding from, and then a bunch of people, a good deal of people read it, you know, only people who were in the industry, but, you know, people read it, and they thought it was a great idea, so much so that uh, another gentleman, Mr. Shepard, helped me secure a couple hundred thousand dollars for funding from the British government. Uh, I got that funding, was able to uh, do a little bit more development on the turbine, really get it solid and nailed down. Uh, and uh, most importantly, get the patent. 
Uh, I then did a whole nother paper, published that paper, that paper did well. Eventually the same professor uh, who I was working with initially, you know, I updated him on my progress, he then agreed to help to me all going through and he gave a recommendation for me to go at MIT. Uh, MIT, then I negotiated a deal with MIT for the patent uh, that I had on my turbine for in exchange for a full scholarship. I did my full scholarship and I got straight into my master. So I have a master's in fluid mechanics, which is kind of just like a fancy subset of physics. Uh, it's called what? I'm sorry? Fluid mechanics. Okay. So I have a master in fluid mechanics, which is just, again, for fancy physics. And uh, MIT then sold the patent or subletted patent to five other companies. Those five other companies are now developing wave turbines based around the principle. Now, do you get credit for that? I get credit for it. Uh, since I finished working on it, a significant amount of people have been working on it after me. So my name is not on the top of the paper, but my name is definitely cited in there as one of the, the first persons to be like, hey, this is, this is what needs to be done. Or to uh, garner interest in, in notoriety into the potential of uh, wave energy uh, in near equator uh, subzones. Now, what what do you say to the person that said, Jibber, you should have not given MIT the patent and you should have sold it to somebody else? Uh, well, it's not very easy to sell a patent. It, re- like, it requires like hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, just uh, legal, legal fees, fees. You know, patent lawyers and negotiating. Uh, I think it's sold for over like $30 million. But I couldn't negotiate that deal. I was never in a position to negotiate my deal. Uh, so I felt like it was better off where I felt it can, you know, best be utilized. If I decided to, you know, try and sell it myself, there's a good chance that it would have gone nowhere or it would have been bought by some, you know, silly company that would put it on a shelf. Uh, and I know MIT was very, very, very interested in working with the technology and that they were going to push it forward. And in the end, I decided, you know, that's what I want to do. Uh, so I got a, a scholarship from MIT, which is, you know, a very, very uh, difficult thing to come by and, you know, it's worth quite a lot of money, so I didn't walk away with nothing. But uh, it was a very, very, very complicated time. Right, 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 uh, right. Difficult right. decisions, you know. No one, no one knows exactly what the best decision would have been, but I, you know, said, no, no, I'm happy with what I did. How can Caribbean governments assist in advancing technology for their countries? Yeah, it's, you have, as a country, as a country, you have to be ready to make change. Smaller countries, I feel, tend to take uh, change the hardest. It's like a gray area because change always comes with, you know, uh, some regression in some sort of way. For example, okay, one of my biggest things I've been working on in the last couple of months, oh, almost a year now, is like negotiating should Anglic be sold or not. This was a very common uh, thing on my radio show. You know, if you remember my radio show, uh, right. I wanted Anglic to be sold. The, the, and the just, just, just for clarification, yeah. Anglic is the electricity company on Anguilla. Yeah, the main electricity company on Anguilla. So I wanted to be sold to a, a larger company that, of course, had the resources to uh, uh, invest and make it into, you know, 
a renewable energy company and develop new technologies for the island and use it as a petri dish for all these new emerging technologies. Anyway, it would have been huge in terms of development, uh, in terms of how we uh, get our electricity. But, of course, uh, it was going to mean a completely different electrical system, which means a good bit of people were going to get laid off. It would mean the selling of Anglic, which means a whole board of directors would have been stripped out. It would mean a lot of the administration staff would be uh, kicked out. It might have some weird thing to do with the, the environment, all these kind of great things. So it was, do we dive into this uh, great initiative to uh, potentially develop the island and be on the cutting edge of technology? Or do we safeguard our, uh, you know, 25 to 30 uh, jobs for technicians in England? And like, I'm sure if you go 20 years from now, and you look back and say, of course, you know, who cares about the 20 jobs, you know, they're going to find other work and so on and so forth. But when it's in the moment, it's, it's a much more difficult decision uh, for, for smaller governments to be able to make. And, you know, that's that's Larry and Tom going to be able to walk in, and John and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the biggest things that's been hampering development. If this was the U.S., that, that would have, it would have been done. Right. Some money would have exchanged hands, some signatures would have been uh, signed. But, you know, we live in a a very tight-knit community, small, and sometimes we have other interests than necessarily uh, might be the best long-term interests for the country. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated thing. It's a complicated thing. Uh, it's something that, you know, I've been uh, like battling uh, with myself about for quite some time, but, you know, there you go. I guess especially in small island yeah. states as well. Yeah, yeah, small island states as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a itchy thing. It's an itchy thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know, at some point, at some point, once the rest of the world has so greatly adopted the technology that it's no longer relevant for Anguilla to adopt it, we will eventually be forced to adopt it. Very similar to something like legalization of marijuana, when Jezebel, uh you know, all the U.S. is finally legalized it, and the U.K. is when we're going to finally legalize it, at which point it's going to be meaningless. Uh, we're going to follow something very more along those suits with uh, techn- technological advancements. Mm-hmm. Now, for those gibber that say the whole climate change thing is a hoax, <laughs> why, should, why should people pay attention to climate change? Oof, you're going to be very surprised. I am not one of those super big climate change people. I think, yes, I think climate change is happening for sure. I'm not exactly sold on uh, the fact that we're the cause and greenhouse gases and all those great things. Right. Uh, one of my biggest motiv- my, my biggest motivation for this project is not the idea that is better for the environment or anything like that. It's mostly because Anguilla needs very much to have a little bit of energy independence and being reliant on fossil fuels and uh, global tensions uh, for fuel prices is you know, not a great way to run a, a country. I think if we were able to produce our own electricity, regardless of uh, uh, you know what's happening in Syria or what's happening in Russia or whatever the case is, that might all of a sudden make power go up and then all of a sudden everything is more expensive and cycle of economy. We had a system where we are at the very least stable. And that's my biggest thing, energy independence. That's why I think 
uh, renewable energy is the is the best way for Anguilla. But I guess you know there's the renewable energy, the the, the environmental impact. My biggest thing is the the notion that humans are the ones to cause renewable uh, global warming. I'm not one of the biggest uh, proponents of that. Well, it's very interesting. <laughs> and yes, I am. A, I'm, I am a bit surprised. Uh, so, how, when you discuss this with your colleagues, because a lot of people in the scientific community, obviously, they do believe in, you know, that climate change uh, occurs because of human beings. Uh, no, mis- they don't. That's, no, they so don't. that's what I'm asking. Well, my yeah, my colleagues, which are the physicists, which are the ones who typically study this. Don't think that the world, we're the major cause of climate change. We think it's just the cycle the world goes through. If you look at uh, uh, global uh, temperatures for the last, you know, couple hundred thousand years, you will see very much that it goes hotter and it goes colder and it goes hotter and it goes colder. And the rate at which it's getting hotter and colder is not uh, significantly more than it has always been uh, throughout the, the course of uh, the, 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 the philosophical records. I, as you mentioned earlier, one of my favorite things was archaeology, and this is why uh, I was uh, very interested in this part for, for quite some time and took a lot of research. But a lot of people don't think, a lot of scientists don't think it's happening necessarily because of human intervention. It's definitely, all scientists think it's happening. It's definitely happening. There's no argument about that. Right. Uh, which is, you know, while we were all agreeing upon that, but there's still quite a bit of disagreement on what the actual cause of actual cause of it is. I think it's just a natural cycle, and there's evidence to support that. So, what do you say to Al Gore, who had a whole long documentary on it? <laughs> I didn't watch the documentary, but I I know the general argument is uh, greenhouse gases impact on the environment, uh, destroying the ozone, more uh, thing coming to the, the atmosphere, more heat generating greenhouse effects the world is getting hotter. But the fact is, this is a very normal process and the world has methods of balancing the same the whole process. So the world gets hotter, then more water evaporates, which creates more cloud cover, which creates more reflective surface uh, on Earth, which uh, bounces back a lot more heat, and now all of a sudden the world is cooler, and so forth and so, uh, so on. What I do think is that it, it's not the argument that should be made. No one should be focusing on this at all because it's not relevant. It doesn't relevant? It's not relevant why it's happening. What's relevant is the fact that it is happening, right. and that we need to figure out a way to stop it. And we should be investing huge amounts of money, not into, I think, necessarily renewable energy, but in a way to uh, to solve the whole overarching problem, which is that we cannot regulate the amount of carbon in our atmosphere. So if you figure out a way for uh, regulating the carbon in the atmosphere, all of a sudden, you can start to control the cycle. And if you can control the cycle, then we're never going to have to go through this whole hot uh, period, cold period, hot air period, cold period. Because all that's going to happen is we're going to go through a hot period. The hot period is going to get really hot. the world's going to go through its process and then it's going to be go down to a medium part and then the world's going to go through a crisis and then we go down to a cold part. That's what just happens. It's, the world has always gone through it. Ice age, uh, plethotheme, 
um, back up to the methacine and then, you know, vice versa. It's just the natural cycle of the world. So this if thing- we can control it, we're in better shape. So do you think it's mostly political then? I think it's mostly political and funding. Like, as a, one of the biggest things that I always thought was very interesting, uh, get, being a scientist and being in the scientific community, is how much I will get paid for saying something. Speak on like, it. <laughs> yeah, I will get, like, as of I'm pretty... I have a little bit of a reputation in the global community on renewable energy. They will pay me quite a lot of money to say renewable energy uh, is the way forward and we need to invest heavily in renewable energy and, uh, you know, the world is on the brink of destruction and all these great things. Uh, even though I don't necessarily think that that's how I get funding for my projects. I got funding for my project from an archangel group out of Boston, which was uh, to fight climate change even though that had nothing to do with it, but it gets people to donate money. So that's that's the name of the game for scientists. You want to do something cool, you have to figure out a way to spin it to make it relevant for, you know, the rest of the world. So all of a sudden, I know a, a colleague of mine who got uh, close to $10 million to uh, develop a high technology that she said was going to be used to do global tracking of uh, uh, the temperature to fight climate change. And it's now the same technology that you see on the Super Bowl, which makes all those drones fly in nice colors and make flags. And she's made a millionaire off of it. I think it's just a marketing thing. Personally. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Deep stuff. It, it, it makes money. That's what scientists have to do. Scientists aren't, you know, we're not that concerned about, uh, you know, what's happening. We're more like, hey, we can fix it. They, speaking of which... We know how to fix it. It's not It's not a complicated thing to fix climate change. It's carbon extraction. There's too much carbon in the atmosphere. You take the carbon out of the atmosphere. How do you do that? With carbon trees. They've been developing it for the last 14 years. It's not a, uh, a special technology. It's been around for at least 30 years. Uh, and you just build more of them and they function just basically like high-powered, tree, uh, high-powered trees and they just rip the carbon out of the atmosphere and then you sell the carbon which is by itself also very valuable and the problem is over so why is, why, why up, isn't that done then it's being done it's 100% being done and it's being funded very very well by very very smart people and it's been operating I think somewhere in South Africa with great success okay 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 so Let, we can cut down on these vicious hurricanes well, I mean, what vicious hurricanes? We, it's not been that bad. Were you in Angola for Irma, brother? Yeah, Irma was bad, but Irma is also just statistics. <laughs> like if you look at if you look at the trend of major hurricanes, like it has not been significantly worse. We've not gotten significantly more or uh, higher intensity hurricanes than we have typically gotten for the last hundred years. In fact. In the 90s was like kind of our peak in terms of hurricane activity. No, that's very true. The 90s was so, interesting. Yeah, uh, it's hotter slightly, but uh, you know that doesn't necessarily equate to the the, the dramatic void of of you know uh, those kind of events. It's it's you know just a, a cycle. A lot of it, I just always thought was just sort of a lot more politics than actual science. 
mind blown this evening. <laughs> uh, renewable energy is something huge if you want to start to take power away from uh, countries that are incredibly wealthy because of their resources with uh, fossil fuels and diesel, whatever the case is which I think is a major part of the reason why it is so heavily incentivized instead of Western culture, because Western culture doesn't seem to have as much fuel reserves as the East. So it's become a political thing in that way, and that's why I think it's being pushed, not necessarily because of the environmental impact. The fact of the matter is fossil fuels is just, you know, a lot more, uh, a lot more, uh, cost-effective than our renewable energy is at this point. So there was never a need to. So you have to create a need. And what do you do to create a need? You uh, manufacture a problem that renewable energy is uniquely uh, poised to, to, to prevent, and that would be climate change. And then you take climate change, which is a problem, again, we can solve, is carbon extraction, which they, is a technology that they've had for quite some time, and invest in that. If I believe that you know this was actually a big problem, I would ask them why they're not uh, investing heavily in this carbon extraction. And the fact of the matter is that's not the end goal. That's not the, the goal of this whole climate change initiative. Mm-hmm. It goes very, 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 very deep. Very, it's very, deep. very, very interesting. Like we can talk, I can talk to you about for hours on top of that alone, which I, which I do quite often <laughs> with some of my other colleagues. So Jimmy, obviously very well educated, a wealth of knowledge. When you finished MIT, um, you were offered a job in China. Why why move back to Anguilla? Well, I moved back to Anguilla for the job in China, uh, which was from a Chinese company uh, with a, a O-N-A-V-O, I don't know how to pronounce it, but that was the name of the, of the Chinese company. And they had offered me a job in a uh, development facility that they were working on uh, specifically geared towards uh, wave energy. China right now uh, is one of the, the biggest utilization uh, utilizers of wave energy in the entire world, and they are you know very invested in technology. So they wanted me to. Uh, they never really gave me exactly what they wanted me to do, but they just wanted me in on on their repertoire. It was a very good paying job, but it was in the industrial sector in China, and in the industrial sector in China, it's you know it's the poor part of uh, China, so it's not as, you know, it's not as nice, not on or anything. So, I looked at it, I went there, I, I checked it out, and I decided, mm, not right, right now. And then I got an offer from an Austrian company to consult with them uh, for two years. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do that instead. Uh, so I just finished January 22nd, I ended my contract for consultancy with this Austrian company. But you got uh, all of that from Anguilla. So I did, so the, the consulting contract was for this Austrian company who was looking to develop or look for a petri dish uh, for their up and coming technologies, one of which was wave energy. Uh, so essentially, uh, they needed a petri dish country, which is what most of these big engineering companies uh, need, basically a small country with preferably an independent power station or independent power source in which that they can take over and use to test some of their larger projects. It's a requirement for some of the bigger uh, governments. For example, like the Puerto Rican government requires a petri dish of over six years. So a lot of the smaller Caribbean countries uh, are, are used for these petri dish. For example, SEVA. SEVA right now is 100% renewable energy. They're uh, testing this new uh, solar cell uh, 
I can't remember the company that's developed it, but they went and completely took over Sabre's energy grid and they told it 100% renewable and they're using Sabre to test their solar panels. They test their solar panels for, I think, they got a period of eight years. And after the eight years, they do an assessment. After the assessment is good, they get their big, nice stamp of approval and then they can sell it to, you know, countries like Puerto Rico or Australia or the United States or the UK. Okay. So that's, that's what I was working on uh, in that meantime, just sort of uh, giving advice on the best ways to uh, implement it within the region, just because I had a little bit of experience implementing things, yeah. Mm. So that ended up being not as well-paying, but, you know, it was it was nice, and I get to stay in Anguilla, which, you know, I have a lot of uncle, friends, family, and all that kind of stuff, yeah. So I decided to do that. Now that that contract is over, you know, I'm entertaining the idea of the Chinese offer still on the plate, and I'm feeling uh, more warm to it than I was before. So I think that might be my next step, but, you know, only the future can tell. Mm-mm-mm. So what are your plans for Anguilla, Jibri? Uh, my plans for Anguilla, I would love to see some wave technologies be implemented in Anguilla because one of the things that is not very well known or is not talked about nearly enough. I talk with often, but I don't think people are really fully realize on how special Anguilla is. You always hear Anguilla is the most northeastern island in the Caribbean, but no one really sees the value in that or you know why that matters. We're being the most northeastern, we get direct access to some of the most powerful trade currents coming off the coast of Africa, which are extremely energy dense. And on top of that, our unique shape, as long as, uh, along with uh, Scrub Island, makes like this perfect funnel in effect that makes us have about a quarter square mile of some of the most densely packed wave activity in the entire world. So much so that in my course where I studied at MIT, we literally spent like three, four weeks just studying what made this specific patch off the coast of Anguilla so special. And I would love to see Anguilla utilize that in one way or another. Uh, so I've been working on that uh, for the last about two years as well. And, you know, more traction, less traction, more traction. But we're going to have to see how this new government uh, plays into it. And we just finished the elections here in Anguilla. So we're going to see what this new government has to say. And hopefully we can see something solid move forward. In, in, in due time. Mm-hmm. So that's my whole friend, Willa, but, you know, I'm not as invested in it as I once was. Now, even though you're a physicist and, and an inventor and everything, you have a deep passion for politics. Why is that? Well, I, I've always loved the theater of it. Like, I've always loved listening to these uh, enthusiastic people speak and all that kind of stuff. But... Uh, in the last like two years, two or three years, I've all of a sudden have to be at meetings and meetings with government officials and this, that, the other. Not just in Anguilla, but in Sabre and some parts of the UK and some parts of the US and, and so on and so forth. And I was appalled. I was absolutely appalled at what passes for representation. The amount of meetings that I've had with people sitting on the other side of the table who were elected representatives who had absolutely no idea what was going on scared me. I was always under the impression that, yes, you know, they say stupid stuff and on, on, plat- 
platforms and on TV and all that kind of great stuff, but it was mostly just sort of, you know, politics, so they kind of just being theatrical. And that, you know, when the cameras are off and, you know, everyone goes home, they're actually very intelligent, uh, well-meaning and, you know, uh, uh, inclusive persons behind the scenes because, you know, that's what being a politician is and this nationalistic play. I was very shocked to find in a lot of cases that that was not what was happening. They, they really do behave like that, even in business meetings, even in development conferences, even in uh, just regular social gatherings. And that opened my eyes to a greater issue. And I was like, how do we make this better? So I want, I started getting involved in politics and trying to give as much of like any government who is, ask me for consulting services, I always do it for free. If you're going to, I've always made my, 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 my expert. If you, if you need to make an informed decision, please come and, you know, touch base with me. I'll always give whatever information I possibly can. And, you know, also if I don't know myself, I can point you in the direction of people who do know in order to, you know, mess, make informed decisions. The amount of decisions I've seen that I feel have been very ill-informed has shocked me. Mm. And, because of that, I started to do a little bit more political commentary. So I had my own radio show for a little while where we would talk about issues uh, along these lines. And I would commentate on issues on a little blog I had as well. And I would send letters and open public letters about whatever issue that came up, uh, you know, that I had any kind of knowledge in and, and things like that. That's kind of what got me into politics itself. It was just sheer disappointment and the, the, the lack of political representation. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people, I feel, still think, you know, all right, they might, you know, be this and that or behave a certain way because, you know, they're politicians and... They get a pass, you know, they, always, they, they get a pass that other people... Yeah, they get, get a pass, but they're like this in meetings. These are the people who are actually negotiating contracts. I've had people make animal noises with, you know, they... huge scientists on the table oh and all kind of great God. stuff. Oh the questions God. that I've heard at some of these huge billion-dollar meetings would, 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 would boggle anybody. Trinidad is actually within the Caribbean, one of the biggest utilizers, utilizers of, uh, of wave energy. They have a factory there. Mm. Uh, that does bottling of all kind of juices. I think Hennekin is a bunch of, of beverages. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest within the region. And that plant is completely powered by wave energy. Damn. But you know, they don't get hurricanes yeah. like that either. So, you know. Yeah, they, don't, they also don't get hurricanes as much. So, Jibber, what does success look like to you? By um. Like biggest thing for me for success would be uh, reputation. I want my name to have something positive uh, associated with it. I always look at people like Ronald Webster and Albert Lake and uh, those persons who really left uh, a solid mark on Anguilla and the world, and I'm always envied things like that. And I always want to have some sort of uh, last impression. Everyone wants to be remembered for something great, and I think that's what drives me. And if I feel as though I've, I've reached that point, I consider myself uh, a success. Uh, and I'm getting close to it, and I think I think if I can hit that out of the park, you know, 
the next 10, 20 years, uh, I'll be happy. That's my, my biggest goal. On a lighter note, a couple of friends of mine and I, we're big into house music and EDM, and we've been always, we've always been big into, into those genres. And we were discussing on Facebook one day how we were going to be the first people to go to Tomorrowland. <laughs> you, my friend, and another uh, compadre, Saudi, decided to go to Tomorrowland and beat us out. Uh, you guys beat us to the punch. How Man, was Tomorrowland? So uh, say again? That made me so happy to beat you guys. Ah, we are so happy to be the first one. Oh, my goodness. How was the Tomorrowland experience? Absolutely amazing. But it wasn't just the Tomorrowland experience. It was how we did the Tomorrowland experience. I'm going to lay this out for you real quick on what our experience was. We decided we're going to make a week out of it. We only get 15 days vacation a year. We're not going to waste a week or a day doing anything we didn't want to do. So we had five days, uh, uh, not including travel. And so we landed in France. We spent, we had breakfast in France, uh, in front of the Apple Tower, mm-hmm. where we, uh, saw the sun come up and saw these beautiful weddings and the boys flying, just amazing, awesome. Uh, we, took a train from France. We went to Amsterdam uh, and we spent the afternoon straight through till about four o'clock in the morning in Amsterdam. So just a proper night in Amsterdam and doing, you know, all the fun Amsterdam stuff, nightlife and all that. And then we went straight from Amsterdam at four o'clock in the morning as soon as the train start open to Belgium, which is where the Tomorrowland Music Festival is. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Tomorrowland Music Festival, please look it up because I think it's something that everybody should experience. It's about 400,000 people journeying from all over the world. I mean, all over the world. And they all meet in on this like transformed farm plot that is just the most magical thing you've ever seen. And they enjoy three days of just great energy it's not even about the music the music is one thing but it's about the atmosphere and the energy that you get from the place absolutely loved it day one made me cry our first our first concert the first the first night of it which was like one of the pre-nights absolutely brought both me and my friend Assad to tears it was amazing it's one thing to see the pictures and it's one thing to to watch the live but when you're in a crowd of what's gotta be over six to seventy thousand people who all just radiating great energy and the the mood is there and it's it's raining and it's cold but everybody's just happy to be there and you you're you uh, you feel like you're in a, a family of all those people and it's just a it's a feeling that's hard to explain. It's just, it's everything that you think is going to be and then more. Like you don't, you could never be prepared. We spent like a week just trying to prepare ourselves, saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're gonna, how we're going to do it. And also, and when we reach, we could, you could never be prepared for tomorrow. Man. It's just nonstop vibes. I, I, 
I've never experienced anything like it, and I don't think I ever experienced anything like it again. And and on top of that, for like the promoter side, the event is extremely well organized, extremely well organized. Again, four hundred thousand people. I never waited more than five minutes for a drink. Uh, 400,000 people. I never had no problems with the bathrooms. That's one of the biggest things. We were in the, the bathroom at Tomorrowland. The bathroom at Tomorrowland has a DJ booth in it. Each one of the bathrooms has a DJ booth. Oh, it was just that. That's the, the level of stuff. It was just the, the showers had a DJ. It was just music, house music, and hundreds of thousands of people who deeply love music, house music. And I. By ever since I've left, I've been dying to go back and bring more people with me. Hmm. If I, you guys end up going, I will hire too. <laughs> oh, as soon as COVID's over and we get the green light, we're gone. Why? And we were so happy the whole time because you know, of course, I get canceled for this year. The whole time we were watching, it's like, thank God we did that last year because who knows when we're gonna be able to do something like that again? I know, I know. And you know us, we're 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 a couple of years older than you guys, and we procrastinated, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, Gen, you Gen Z, uh, uh, young millennials are just <laughs> hoppers. I, I would love to see like a couple of Anguilla promoters go to Tomorrowland. I would so far, I go so far as to say the Anguilla government should send some of these promoters to Tomorrowland because. The, the festival was amazing, but the organization of this festival just blew me away. It's, well it's, it's a 24-hour job, everything. man. It's a job that's, oh, all, it it's a job that's all year round. so well. Bar, the bars just handled so well. Admission handled so well. Buying and selling of items handled so well. Uh, security, everything just handled so well. It was such it's just like a festival like nothing else like the other festivals like ultra and all that kind of stuff but what really sets tomorrowland apart is like the organization it's just so well set up that you really when you reach there you feel like you have nothing to do you don't have to worry about anything but just having a great time here's a question that i think those uh listeners on anguilla would like to know can you give us a recipe for your dad's cheese patties? Boy, I don't think anybody <laughs> ever replicate a recipe. I think my brother is the closest one, but I can't get to do. I can't get to do. No, as good as my father's cheese patties are, you know who taught him? His mom. His mom, and that is a whole nother cheese patty. Can you? Can of you? Which you have. For our listeners, never that, anything like it. yeah. For our listeners that are not from Angola that have never tasted it, can you describe the cheese patty to them? It is. It is. I guess the closest thing you have, like with brown peel, is like a calzone, right? Uh, like cal- a calzone yeah. is based, oh. yeah. It's like a fried calzone, but in such a different way. Still, it's like have a sweet a sweetness to it, and it's just. You know, fun to eat because it's like a pocket. Uh, uh, it's just something that always remind me of home. You know, it's my father had a band basically where he sold one thing and one thing only, and it was pizza patties. And that in, in an Anguilla where you know we're pretty picky with our food and we have our own specific likes, so you know that speaks for itself. But 
quite a piece of pate. It's it's, a, it's um, like seasoned gouda cheese with tomato sauce and. Yes, it's something. I I don't even fully know how to make it. My brother is the closest one to making it, but even that don't taste a hundred percent right. It's like right down to the oil. Like if you if you taste a piece of pate and one thing is off, literally one thing. If it's not the same brand of gouda cheese, you're gonna be like, what? What's this? It don't taste right. But once everything is lined up, it's like a it's like a, a blast for your past. One of the biggest things with a piece of pate too is is, is nostalgia. I'm sure you eat a piece of pate and bring you right back to being back in that plaid uniform, that, 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 that I, beige uniform. I try, I try to get one every time I go home and we sit and chop it up. Yeah. It, it, tastes, it tastes like high school. It tastes like high school, yeah. <laughs> and in Anguilla, where there's only one high school, you know, it, it, it plays a special part in your heart. Oh, the memories, the memories. Oh, the memories. So, Jibber, you, you've gone to university, you've invented things. And you're at the ripe old age of 25. What's next for Jibri? What's next for me? I to be completely honest with you, I am not 100% sure. One thing uh, that I do know is that I'm in a good situation. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to be in a good situation. And I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to make sure I am as happy as I can be. I feel this is something that not enough people get the opportunity to do, to care about their own happiness when making these kind of decisions. Uh, and, you know, I might say, all right, I'm going to, you know, take some time and, you know, develop on something else. Or maybe I'm going to, you know, work on, uh, maybe, I, maybe I want to be an artist. But one of the cases, I'm doing a little bit of soul searching at the moment, figuring out exactly what path I want to go down. What kind of artist? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, videographer. Okay. Okay. Actually, I really like videography as well. I don't know if you know that about me, but I I'm quite a fan of your work, and I study your work, and I and I try to make my own little documentary type films as well. And uh, it's it's something that you know I've always done for a little while. I have a little Canon Rebel Ti that I've been just playing with for the last three years, and thinking about you know, going and get something a little bit better. Uh, oh, no, thank you, and and, and, and and just a comment, uh, Canon. Yeah, great, great start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a Canon yeah, exactly. fan. I know, I know, I know. I got your recommendation when I bought my first camera. Uh, and then, uh, but you know, see where things go. Right now, I do business development for a data company in NCDS called NCDS. Oh, in Angola called NCDS. Uh, and we're working on some really interesting uh, developments in the next coming a uh, couple of months, so full services that we're going to be bringing to Anguilla. So right now, that's why I'm putting uh, my energy uh, towards in the in the short term. But in the long term, by who knows? Who knows? You know, you know how this world is. Of course, of course. What is your ultimate goal? Like at the end of all this, and you're overlooking, I don't know, which whatever your favorite beach is with your house on the hill. What is that thing that you'd like to say? I wanted to accomplish this, and I accomplished it. That's a very, very good question. One of my biggest mentors in my life, uh, and person I respect deeply, uh, is Don Mitchell. And back when I was making some of my more difficult decisions in terms of like what we mentioned earlier with the patent and 
going to school and you know what I should be doing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I went to, to him for advice. Like, should I follow my passion? Should I go be a scientist? Because, you know, that's where I, you know, could possibly make good money. He gave me some real good advice. He said, what do you want to do? I was like, what I really want to do is I want to, I want to, I want to do archaeology. I want to travel and I want to learn things about uh, interesting places in the world and, 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 and be that kind of person. He's also a historical person. And he said, he gave me some advice that his father had given him. And that was, Son, make your money. A job is a job, and a job is not necessarily something you're going to love. So make as much money as you possibly can. And when you do that, then you can do what you love. He uh, took that, uh, and he's been followed. He became a judge, a lawyer, made his good bit of money, and now he spends all of his time uh, studying history and the history of Anguilla. And he, and he seems to be pretty happy. So I, I think I'm following something along those lines. Right now, make as much money as I possibly can. And when uh, I've done that, and I feel like I've uh, also paid my debt to society and all those great things, then I want to travel uh, and study archaeology of different areas. Uh, first on the list being South Africa. Hmm. Why South Africa? Uh, because I was able to go there once and it was the first place that I went on a little dig and I found my first fossil. It was a fossilized, some sort of crab-like creature, like not a relative of a shoe crab. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of what was the first thing that was, you know, tangible and gave me the, hey, I want to be an archaeologist uh, type feeling. So I felt like, you know, that would be a really fun place to start, as well as it's South Africa. It's an amazing place. Of course, of course. Now, Jimmy, this is a segment that I call The Planet is Yours. I strap on my spacesuit, jump off the planet into the atmosphere, and I allow you to say whatever it is you want to the public, to the, to the, planet, uh, <laughs> to the planet 30 family. Whatever it is that you want to say, go ahead. Learn as much as you possibly can, and even more critically than that, be your own judge. We uh, live in a, a, a world where so often you're told how to think and what to think, and we don't have enough people uh, thinking for themselves. And I would like to urge every single person, every time you're given uh, some information or you learn something or you feel like you have a, a, a notion of something, dig a little deeper because I think that's really what the world is missing right now. We're, we're told too much what to think and not enough free-minded thinkers. So, uh if you are a free-minded thinker, great. Keep going. The world desperately needs you. And if you aren't one, I think it's something that you should, you know, put some effort towards because I think it's something that, you know, has made a big impact on my life. And I think it's what the world is missing. Awesome. Now, Jimmy, how do we contact you? What are your social media handles, your website, your blog? Lay down on Facebook. Facebook is my biggest thing. I'm one of the few young people still using Facebook. Uh... Uh, I absolutely love it. Uh, I have a blog also that I just, it's more computer technology stuff, but if you're interested in computer technology stuff, I have a blog. It's called JibreLewis at theblogspot.com. Uh, I have a, re I had a radio show and I'm going to have a radio show again shortly. And it was on Class FM Radio, which has a Facebook page, which you should like and follow because in the future, if, when I have my radio show again, I will be there. Uh, and also you can contact me 
uh, you know, for any kind of personal inquiries at Jibri Lewis at gmail.com. That's J-I-B-R-I Lewis, L-E-W-I-S at gmail.com. Awesome-tastic. Jibri Lewis, physicist, inventor, and all-around tech guy, future politician, radio host, and all that good stuff, archaeologist, and everything in between. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for joining me on Planet 30 today. And thank you so much for having me. And I hope you are the best. You know, we here are waiting patiently a little tropical storm. So, you know, wish us best of luck with that as well. Oh, of course, of course. I'm confident everything will go fine. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. We did all more well. We, we ain't worried about this. Irma tested. The train is still open. Oh, my goodness. Good <laughs> news, take care. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.